today's scripture reading is Genesis chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 9, um, and Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9 also, which can be found on page 8 of your pew Bibles. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us build bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, with which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And now Genesis uh, chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, and as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm glad to be here with you this morning. Um, Jessica and I have been living in Massachusetts for five or six weeks now. We've been here at Westgate several times now, and I can't tell you how grateful we are that the Lord has brought us to such a wonderful place among such wonderful people and to a church as excited about the gospel as Westgate is. I'm glad to be here in this place this morning, um, standing before you with the opportunity to preach God's word to you. I'm thankful for this opportunity. I remember seeing once on social media where someone had posted, I love it when the youth pastor preaches. I don't understand his haircut or his message, but I know it's only going to be 23 minutes long. (laughs) And I can't promise you that it's only going to be 23 minutes long, but I'm fairly certain that some of it's going to be incomprehensible. So I know that Bruce is in the middle of a series on prayer right now, and we're going to deviate from that series this morning to look at these passages in Genesis 
to make observations uh, from these two seemingly independent stories in this book. Because they speak to a common human struggle, one that humanity has wrestled with forever. A simple question about whether or not God is trustworthy. Last weekend, Jessica and I traveled with my parents. They came to town to visit us. We traveled up to Vermont and New Hampshire, and we saw a lot of covered bridges, which are beautiful and very cool. And as we drove up to them, you know, in our car, and I saw the little sign that said something about, you know, this bridge built in 1790 or something like that. I'm wondering whether or not this bridge, you know, was designed for modern automobiles. You know, I'm wondering as we drive across it, if it's going to collapse from underneath us because, you know, it was built with donkeys and, you know, horses and carts in mind, not with, you know, a thousand pound vehicles in mind. And I want, you know, you can't help but wonder as you drive up to something like that, whether or not it's trustworthy or whether it's going to fall out from underneath you. Because trusting, trusting in someone or something requires us to depend on others. And when the rubber meets the road, that makes us uncomfortable. We wonder, can I stand on this? Can I stake my life on it? Is it safe and is it secure? It's an uncomfortable place to be, and so we try to avoid that feeling. We move things around in our lives in an effort to provide for ourselves and our families, to protect ourselves, and to make our future secure. And that is exactly what we see taking place on the plains of Shinar in Genesis 11. These people are the descendants of Noah, only a few chapters after uh, the, the great flood. And so we know that these people in this story are only a few generations removed from Noah himself. And these descendants have gotten together with the common goal of building a city, and not just a city, but a magnificent tower. And maybe you, in reading this passage this morning, or every year when you come to it in your daily Bible reading plan, you wonder to yourself why it's such a big deal that they want to build a city and a tower. Perhaps when you were a kid in Sunday school and you saw your teacher putting the the people and the tower on the felt board in your Sunday school classroom, you wondered to yourself why it's such a big deal that they had this goal in mind. Perhaps this passage was perplexing to you like it was to me. But if we keep the context of of the book of Genesis up to this point in mind, certain red flags begin to pop up. First, is that God had given Noah and his descendants specific commands to be fruitful and fill the earth in the same way that he had commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and fill the earth. To scatter across the uh, the face of the earth and tend to the created order. And in chapter 10, it seems like this is exactly what's taking place. Chapter 10 is uh, reminding us of the family lineage that comes out of Noah's uh, sons, And it seems like they are doing exactly what the Lord had commanded. They are being fruitful, having children, moving about, flourishing, and settling the earth. But on the plains of Shinar, the people have abandoned this mission. And instead, they have decided to build a city. And that is disobedience. It is direct disobedience. Additionally, another red flag appears because they are coming from the east. And that's a detail that we might easily read right past. But the author, the narrator here of this passage, includes it very specifically, very intentionally. And even though that little detail about the fact that these people are coming from the east doesn't really orient readers in a geographic sense, it does link these city builders with others in Genesis who had come to or from the east. Condemned for their sin, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden and God's presence to live east of Eden. Eden. 
And Cain, likewise, after killing his brother, was sent eastward. Hearing that these builders have come from the east is a very subtle nod to the condition of their hearts. However, a bigger and more concerning red flag is the motive behind their desire to build a city and a tower. In verse 4, they declare to one another, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In addition to their disobedience to God's command to scatter across the face of the earth, they want to make a name for themselves. They want to be remembered for their accomplishments. They want to be respected for what they're capable of. They want glory. And that's a mindset that I think every single one of us can relate to. Because that's a passion buried somewhere in every single one of our hearts. We all want to be thought well of and highly regarded and respected. Not a single one of us revels in criticism or celebrates in being laughed at or disrespected because we love to be loved. We love to be respected. As a pastor, I have the opportunity to stand before people proclaiming the gospel and preaching God's word. And that is a tremendous responsibility and one, I, one that I handle with great care. But every time that I prepare to stand in a pulpit or before a group of people, there's a little voice in the back of my head that's asking questions like, will they like me? Will they like this sermon? Will it change someone's life? Even though that I, I know it's a desperately long shot, will they think that I'm smart? And even as I wrote that, as I wrote that in my notes, I thought, will they think that that's funny? It's easy as a pastor to get to the point where I think more about what people will think of me than what they will think of the gospel. And I have to rebuke that tendency in my heart. We all do. Because we all want glory at some level. We all want what the builders of this tower wanted. It's something we share in common with them. But hidden in this passage is another red flag, one that is potentially scarier. Because the tower that they're building is not just for looks. They're almost certainly building something called a ziggurat. It's a common ancient Near Eastern structure. Now, I'm not just telling you that because I want you to think that I'm smart for knowing about the word ziggurat. Even though I've just told you that obviously, you know, somewhere in my mind, I'm hoping that you'll think I'm smart. Ziggurats were something that was, uh, they were somewhat common at this point in history in the ancient Near East. And they served one purpose. They were built as an important part of idol worship. So the Tower of Babel was not just supposed to be an impressive structure. It was designed to be a gateway between the heavens and the earth a place where the people of Shinar could serve the needs of the gods that they worshipped. Because the gods that they worshipped had needs. They were dependent on human worshippers, inhabitants of earth, for food and basic necessities. And the tower, this tower, the ziggurat, is where they would receive that those basic necessities, the things that they needed from people. And in exchange for giving the gods what they needed, the people of Shinar could reasonably expect a blessing in return, and protection from the gods that they served. It was a symbiotic relationship. Give the gods what they need, and in return, 
the gods would make the farmland fertile. They would bring rain. They would give parents the sons that they had prayed for or whatever it was that the people wanted. But it boils down to a simple truth. The people of Shinar, they wanted to manipulate their gods. They wanted gods that they could control. And so they conceived of gods who were dependent on them because they wanted to be in control. They had the power to withhold what the, what the gods that they worshipped needed and to strong-arm their gods into giving them an even greater blessing because they wanted control. And they thought they could have it because the gods that they worshipped were small and weak. The people of Shinar, in their story, we hear echoes of Adam and Eve's rebellious attempt to seize control for themselves to grasp for themselves the blessing that they thought that God had withheld from them. So these people build a tower, a grand, awe-inspiring tower, which would cause travelers to stop in their tracks and ask, who is so powerful? Who is so organized? Who is so glorious to build such a structure as this? But with a fair amount of irony in the passage we're studying this morning, we read, our narrator points out to us in a, in a sentence that seems to be just dripping with irony, that God came down to see what these builders had made. He steps down from the heavens in order to see the tower, which was intended to reach him in his throne room. Right? It's not that God can't see it from where he is. It's that this tower is so small in the grand heavenly scheme that the Lord steps down to see it. And in looking at the works of their hands, God confirms the condition of their hearts. Nothing, no sin is beyond their reach. They are devoted to it. And he says, this is only the beginning of what they will do in verse 6. Again and again in this book of Genesis, even though we're only 11 chapters in, the desire of man's heart for sin has been put on display. And as before the flood, when the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, the Lord condemns these people and says that their desire is for sin and that this is the, only the beginning of what they will do. The focus of the entire book of Genesis so far has been on God's plan to bless mankind by giving him what is good. And the tension that has come each time that mankind has failed to trust God and receive that blessing. Instead, each time man has attempted to grasp blessing for himself, to seize control for himself, and to manipulate the divine to fit his own will. And here with the tower, the builders of Shinar have built a structure to give themselves control over the gods that they serve. And it seems very reasonable to them because they have a very small view of God and a very large view of themselves. They think this is a reasonable arrangement. They think that they are capable of building a tower that would reach to the heavens in order to give themselves control over the puny gods that they serve. And so in verse 8, God does what these people had failed to do. He scatters them across the land. He spreads them out as, the, as he had commanded them to do for themselves but he also confuses their languages, and that is as much a punitive measure as it is a protective one. Because it will be more difficult for them now 
to engage in the same type of sin that they have been pursuing. They are scattered. They cannot communicate with one another, and it will be more difficult for them to, to, to pursue the same sin that God has just caught them in. However, at each point in the book of Genesis that God has confronted sin, there has been a sign of grace, an overt sign of grace that God has demonstrated. As God carries out judgment for sin in, in covering the nakedness and the shame of Adam and Eve, he promises the serpent that the seed of the woman will crush his head. It is a sign of the grace that he will bring. God preserved a remnant during the flood as he carried out judgment on the sin of the people of the earth, he preserved a remnant in order to provide a way for his good promises of love and restoration to be kept. But here in Shinar, at the base of this tower, there is no overt display of grace, no promise of restoration or redemption. Just scattering and language confusion. And at the end of the passage of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, as we arrive at verse 9, it is a desperately sad situation because at this point in the narrative, we've seen the cycle of sin, wrath, repentance, and grace several times. But here in chapter 11, grace and repentance are missing from that cycle. And it seems like things are pretty dark until we arrive in chapter 12 and God's unexpected intervention in the life of a man named Abram. I hadn't previously put these two passages together and recognized the way that next to one another we can see a lot more than if we take either one of them independently. And I feel like with chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 or 1 through 9, we often sort of lift that passage out of the book of Genesis, praise God for the fact that he arrives in Abram's life, makes promises of restoration and redemption not just for Abram, but for his family and for the world. And that is certainly a reason to praise God. But when we look at this chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, in light of chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, beauty emerges. Abram is a typical man born in a land not far from where this whole tower fiasco took place. He lives in the land which will eventually become known as Babylon. And while not much information is given about him in his introduction to us, there is one thing that we can safely assume. He is not looking for God when God arrives in his life. Instead, Abram is part of an idol-worshiping culture, the same, the very same as the one that God had disbanded at Shinar. Abram is a pagan idolater, worshiping the gods which he has fashioned with his own hands that he can subject to his own will. Yet, God comes to, to him, making promises about the things that he will do. And even though these promises may seem familiar to us, promises of land and a family and a, a blessed relationship with God himself, even though these promises may be familiar to us, they seem even more incredible to us in light of what we know about chapter 11, because these are promises that only God himself could keep. God alone will give Abram a family and a homeland. God alone will do these things. God alone will make Abram's name great and bless and protect him. God alone will accomplish these things. Abram must only trust God and stake his life on that trust by moving away from the world that he's known 
to the place that God is commanding him to go. It is a a remarkable scene. Abram was not out looking for God. He wasn't building towers in order to position himself to receive blessing from God. He had not manipulated God into blessing him somehow. Whatever small view he may have had of God is shattered and replaced by the overwhelming view of the God of the universe who is unbound, independent, the God who needs nothing from Abram but commands him to go and says, I will do this for you. Sometimes when we read this passage, it can be easy, I think, to get to verse 9. And we say, wow, you know, what a man of faith Abram was. Look, look at how he, he hears the difficult command of the Lord and he drops everything to move with his family. As soon as God calls him to do it, he just drops everything and goes. And we wonder to ourselves, would I, would I have faith that would enable me to do that? If the Lord appeared in my life in the way that he appeared in Abram's life and commanded me to drop everything and go, would I have that sort of faith? In verse 9, we do see Abram obey and move a world away. He's begun to worship God, built altars of worship to the Lord, to abandon his idol worship in favor of a relationship with the creator and sustainer of the universe. And it can be easy to focus on Abram's obedience with reverence and awe. Certainly, Abram's willingness to hear the difficult command of God and obey is worthy of our notice, but it is not the reason that this passage stirs our hearts to praise. When we focus on Abram and his obedience and his worship, we make the object of our praise a man named Abram. And we make ourselves the focus of our attention as we wonder whether or not we would do the same in the same circumstance. We have a tendency, I think, to make the Bible about us or to do our best to make the Bible about us. And we do that often with Genesis chapter 12. But this passage is as clear a reason as any to recognize that the Bible exists to tell us about God, what he has done and what he is doing. The author of this passage seems a lot less interested in the receiver of the promise than in the one who makes them. Abram, in the presence of the maker and keeper of the universe, is only to believe and obey. God is the one who will do the incredible by his own power. And we've already begun to see in this passage how big a deal that really is. As Abram arrives in the land that God promises him, in an almost offhanded way, our narrator comments to us that there there are people living there already. The Canaanites live in Canaan. I guess that's why they're called Canaanites. They already live there. Yet God is promising to give this land to a man named Abram and to his descendants. So that's going to be an obstacle. At the very end of chapter 11, when we first met Abram, in verse 30, we, we learn that his wife is barren, un, unable to have children. I'm certain that Abram and his wife have been trying to have children for years and years and years, and they have realized she is unable to have children. Yet God promises that Abram will have so many children, they will be innumerable. That's going to be a speed bump. Abram's responsibility is to believe and obey. God is the one who will do the incredible by his own power. God says, I will do this. 
according to my will and according to my grace and love, I will do this. Whereas the people of Shinar thought of their gods as small and tethered to specific regions or towns or families, the God of the Bible, when he meets Abram, commands him to leave his home, to leave behind the region, the town, and the family that he knows because God is demonstrating to him that he is unrestricted, unbound. He is untethered in the way that these puny gods that people worship and subject to their will are. Abram is being commanded to cast aside the idols of his people and his upbringing, his culture, the carved gods made in the image of mankind. And in exchange, he is invited into relationship with the God of all creation, of all time and all people. And while the people of Shinar sought to make a name for themselves by their own might, by their own strength and ability, God tells Abram, I will make your name great. I will do this thing, not you. By my power, it will be accomplished, not by yours. By, by receiving the promise and grace of God, Abram will become famous by association. There are many differences, important contrasts between the opening verses of chapter 12 and the open, opening verses of chapter 11. They are important and they help us to recognize the condition of the heart of mankind and the heart of the God who saves. Because beginning in chapter 3 of this book, with the fall and, of Adam and Eve into sin, the completeness of creation was stained by sin. And each time that God has confronted that sin, he has promised restoration, except when he came to see the tower on the plains of Shinar. And generations passed after he scattered the people across the earth and confused their language. Then, in coming to Abram, God sets in motion a plan of redemption that will make all things new and bring life where there was death. The people of Shinar wanted blessing from God, and so they sought to master him in order to receive it. They wanted their toil and struggle in the fields and farms that they tended to result in abundant harvest. They wanted to become wealthy. They wanted protection from their enemies. They wanted health and longevity. These were the things that they expected from the gods that they served. But God comes to Abram with an even greater promise than that, a greater promise than anyone had dared hope. Abram has not earned this favor. He certainly has not mastered God. Instead, God is the master, commanding obedience, and his promise is grace. A grace greater than mankind had thought to ask for or imagine. The sheer magnitude of that grace comes into view next to the rubble of idol worship that was the Tower of Babel. And while there are many crucial differences between chapters 11 and 12, there is one important similarity. God's concern is with the whole world. He is not content for his blessing to rest upon one corner of his creation, one man or one people group. He scatters the people of Shinar across the world and he promises Abram that these people, these same sinful people will receive the blessing of God the God of the universe, through Abram and through his descendants. It is a grace greater than the world had the ability to conceive. And God alone will carry it out. God alone, by his will, by his sufficient power, by his love and mercy, will keep this promise. 
Our God, the God of the Bible, will not be manipulated. He will not be mastered. He will not be conformed to the will of man according to the desire of man. We have more in common with the builders of Shinar, I think, than we'd like to admit. There's one author who um, I really respect who makes the comment that this this sort of religion, what, what we see taking place on the plains of Shinar, this uh, decision or belief that if we give God what he wants, then we can reasonably expect that we will receive in return what we want, that this belief structure is human beings' most natural theology. It is what comes most naturally to us. And you see that evidence in the fact that every religion in the world works that way, apart from Christianity. Give God what he wants, and then you can expect in return what you want. In discussing this concept with students, I often describe this way of thinking about God as if he were a some sort of cosmic vending machine, and that as long as I put in the, the right amount of money, right, as long as I put it in in, you know, you know, the right currency and the right amount of money, and I push the buttons in the right order, then I am entitled to believe, to expect that what I want is going to drop out and I'll be able to get it. And then if it gets hung up on the little hook, that gives me the right to be pretty frustrated with the God that I worship because I put in my coins. And it is frustrating when, you know, the Funyuns that we want don't fall and we bang on the front of the machine, right? Because we, and we, you know, we do the same thing in our relationship with God, I think. It is our most natural tendency to think that if we give God what he wants, then we should expect, we can expect to get what we want. And that is even the way that many churches think about God, many Christian churches, many people within Christianity think of God this way. That as long as you give to God what he wants, and usually that means you know giving money to whatever pastor you're watching on TV at the time, then he will pour forth blessing into your life. As long as you sow seeds of faith into the church and into the work of the Lord, then you can expect, you should expect that the Lord will bless you and give you your heart's desire. It is our vain attempt to manipulate God, to gain control, to grasp for ourselves what we consider good and what we think is a blessing withheld by the Lord. But in Genesis 11, we see exactly how that fails. And in Genesis 12, we see how the God of the Bible really does operate. And we see why that is good. The people who built the Tower of Babel had big goals. They had lofty aspirations. They wanted glory. They wanted protection from the idols they worshipped. They wanted blessing from the idols they worshipped. But what God promises in Genesis 12 makes those goals seem small, inadequate, and insufficient by comparison. In place of the desires of our hearts, God offers a grace greater than what our hearts might have conceived. Rather than abundant harvest, health and prosperity and longevity, God is moving to give his people freedom from hunger and thirst forever, from sickness and suffering forever. That while our hearts may desire longevity, God is bringing eternal life. That while our hearts may desire prosperity, God is bringing the riches of the kingdom of heaven. And it is not only for God's glory that these things are true, but it is for our good that he is beyond our mastery. 
And as he came down to see the Tower of Babel and the condition of the hearts of man, as he came down to meet with Abram, to make promises to this man and to command his obedience, so he came to dwell among his creation. And Christ, in his ministry, in his life, death, and resurrection, came to give more and more abundantly than the world had dared hope for. And we see that illustrated in the way that Jesus' disciples thought of him and his mission. They knew that Jesus had come to save, but their understanding of exactly what that meant was laughably small compared to what he actually came to accomplish. When Jesus begins telling his disciples in Mark chapter 8 that he's going to be arrested, put on trial, tortured, and executed, Peter rebukes him, saying, Lord, this will never happen. This is impossible, what you're, what you're telling us. And Jesus responds to Peter sharply. Peter, see, he knew that Jesus had come to save. And what he thought that that meant was that Jesus had come to free the Jewish people from Roman oppression by establishing a new kingdom. But that is not what Jesus has in mind. And so he speaks sharply to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. For you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Peter and the rest of the disciples, they couldn't even imagine the scope of Jesus' grace and the promise that he had come to fulfill. They couldn't conceive of a king who who would reign forever and who, by shedding his blood as a propitiation on behalf of his people, would free them forever from the curse of Adam. They had in mind an earthly kingdom which would bring freedom from Rome. They could not imagine a heavenly kingdom, which Christ would bring to bear by making all things new. It is for our good that God is beyond human mastery. Because if he were not, then Peter would have had his way and sin would continue to reign, even if Rome could not. Christ came to bring and to accomplish a grace greater than any human heart could think to ask for or imagine. And that reality, when we take hold of it, and when it begins to shape our worldview, moves us to praise. When we face the reality that our God cannot be mastered, cannot be contained, bound, or manipulated, we come face to face with a central question. Is he trustworthy? And in the shadow of the cross, in full view of the completed work of Christ, And the ongoing work of the Spirit, we proclaim with a shout, yes, he is. And we echo God's word about himself in Isaiah 46 with a cry of joy when he says of himself, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. We praise the God whose accomplishment is beyond our ability, who brings a grace greater than what we might have wished beyond our wildest dreams. We acknowledge these things because they are for our good and his glory. Will you pray with me? God, you are good. 
Your grace is sufficient. And we praise you this morning for having seen the truth of your gospel in your word. Our response to you this morning is praise. We do not seek to master you. We do not think of this time as putting coins into a vending machine in order to expect blessing in return from you. We know that we have received blessing. We have received propitiation. And our response to you is praise. As Abram's response to you was praise. God, we are thankful this morning. We come before you. We open your word together. We lift our voices together because our desire is to praise you for your love and your mercy, for the fact that you are beyond mastery, beyond our control, for the fact that you give what is beyond our wildest dreams, beyond our ability to conceive. You give new life. And we praise you this morning in response. We do so in the name of your Son. Amen.